The failure to recognize and treat a child with sepsis can have devastating consequences for the child and the family, but it is a disease that is sometimes difficult to identify in a timely manner, especially in children. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today I'm chatting with one of the authors of a CMAJ commentary. Dr. Mark Ansimino is a pediatric anesthesiologist and director of the Centre for International Child Health at BC Children's Hospital in Vancouver, British Columbia. In his article, he and his co-authors argue that our country needs smarter trigger tools for diagnosing sepsis in children. Welcome, Mark. Thank you very much. Mark, can you explain to our listeners what is sepsis? What are the dangers of getting sepsis and why do we need to pay particular attention to it in children? So sepsis is defined really as a life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by an abnormal host response to an infection. This is a syndrome that is caused by many different types of infections and often by non-infectious causes as well. And it's really important for us to identify this because this is certainly the number one killer of children around the world. And we know that timely interventions will make a difference in whether these children will live or die. It's a disease that is very difficult to diagnose until it is too late. And it also has huge social and economic implications associated both with the consequences of getting severe sepsis, but also with the consequences of having to be in hospital, having to be treated after hospital. There's many other consequences of this disease. So what current protocols are there for identifying and recognizing sepsis in children? So this will depend where in the world you are. So in most low-resource settings, this is based on a syndromic diagnosis, which we look at certain criteria. In the developed world, we have the same syndromic criteria, but we tend to add some laboratory tests to that. Those are usually simple things like breathing fast, having a fast heart rate, having an altered level of consciousness. And then the types of laboratory tests we would usually add to that is a white cell count and a temperature. What you're saying is that in some situations where you don't have access to lab tests, you'll make the diagnosis based on a clinical scenario. But in more uh, resource-rich environments, you might have a few more tools in your arsenal. Is that right? That's correct, but obviously in the community, you may not have the opportunity to have those same tools. So the types of settings we would see in more rural parts of British Columbia are probably the same as we would see in low-resource settings. So you've written a commentary for CMAJ along with your co-authors in which you argue that many of the current approaches to early identification of sepsis are not adequate. Can you explain what you mean? So... First of all, the current diagnosis of sepsis relies very heavily on physician judgment. And this becomes a particular problem in situations where children are not, with sepsis are not commonly seen, and where that practitioner may not have the skills to identify early sepsis. And as we mentioned earlier, it becomes so critical to identify this disease early and to treat it promptly. From my clinical experience, I I think that children are especially tricky for the generalist because they can deteriorate really quickly. So they can seem well for a long time and then suddenly 
incredibly unwell and crash. Oh, absolutely. And I think this is probably where children are quite different to adults in the sense that is the amount of reserve that the child has is much greater than one would typically see in an adult. So before these signs of sepsis become overt, there can be a significant delay. And that's really where we need to find more targeted ways of identifying when a child's progressed from a mild disease into a more severe form, what would be this uh, syndrome of sepsis. In your article, you argue that um, we need more sophisticated tools to trigger a diagnosis of sepsis, especially in children. What kind of trigger and identification tools should we be using instead, do you think? Well, I think that we need to rely on the same clinical signs and symptoms that an expert physician would use to make this diagnosis. But it takes many years of training and lots of experience to be able to put together these different pieces of information. And so what we're suggesting is really a tool that takes these pieces of information that would include clinical signs and symptoms, measured vital signs, and potentially some laboratory information, and add that together in a much smarter way that then can reduce the burden on the average practitioner who maybe doesn't have those same expertise and skills. So what you're talking about is some kind of artificial intelligence or um, a computer algorithm that could take a number of signs and symptoms, put them together and say, oh, this is a trigger. That's exactly right. And this is an approach that's now been taken in many other disease settings. And, you know, we do do that to a certain extent. Now we make these scores where we sort of add, you know, a high heart rate to a high respiratory rate. And those together will maybe make a greater likelihood that the child will be unwell. But now we're putting it together in a much more powerful way using some sort of computer device. Is it realistic, do you think, to imagine that such smart trigger tools could be integrated into our current healthcare system? I don't think we can afford not to adopt these into our, our healthcare system. And the reason is that, first of all, this is a disease that we realize is increasingly important for us to identify early. And I don't think that there are other ways that we can actually do this. Our current ways that we go about doing this often have negative consequences. So they, firstly, can be distracting. They can produce many false alarms. And we as humans are not very good at looking for these very rare events. So we need help in being able to identify them. So are you saying that the current tools that we use, the paper-based tools and checklists, are perhaps over-diagnosing? I, I think they, that's correct. I think that there are many children that are potentially identified as having sepsis that don't. And of course, that degrades the confidence of the healthcare worker, the patient, everybody else in that particular setting and leads to lots of unnecessary interventions. Absolutely. So we need something that is going to be much more effective in really identifying that child at risk. So what steps do you think are required to get into place um, early identification tools that you're talking about? Well, I think the first thing we need is to recognize that we need these tools. So that requires advocacy, and that requires at every level from, you know, my medical colleagues, nursing colleagues, to our trainees, to looking at politicians. And I think in the world of sepsis, we're seeing 
a huge movement by patient groups, lay public groups, who are campaigning for earlier recognition of the importance of sepsis. Once we've actually done that, we then need to provide the technical solutions. And those technical solutions are obviously my interest and my research goes into this, but obviously it's looking at first of collecting a significant amount of information on which to base these tools. So rather than relying on just expert opinion, we need to have real data that we can use to derive the best integration of these pieces of information to enable us to make these smarter decisions. And you said this is part of the research that you're doing currently. Yes. For the last 10 years, we've been trying to use this concept of data to drive automation and um, improve decision-making in healthcare. Um, and I think that it's something that's going to come in healthcare in a major way in the next 15 to 20 years, but it's, it's been slow adopting this. But I think this is just such a small step relative to some of these big image things that we're seeing with artificial intelligence. This is so tangible, so easy to do, um, that I think it's the sort of first step that we need to move towards. And I, I don't particularly like the concept of artificial intelligence. Um, I prefer the term um, augmented intelligence, which is very much on how we take these smart tools to enable physicians to make better decisions. And I think that, um, you know, we as the medical uh, community need to take a lead on this. We need to be, you know, wanting this technology. We need to provide the right direction around this technology. And we shouldn't be afraid of this technology, you know, overtaking us and, uh, you know, taking our jobs, which is often how it's promoted. I think this is very much more as seeing these as hugely valuable tools that we'll be able to use to enable us to better use the information that we have to treat patients better to improve outcomes. And most of my research is actually in the in low resource settings. So, and the reason why we focus there, obviously, sepsis is still, you know, the biggest kill of children around the world. And it's much easier to validate these tools in settings where, you know, you're dealing with higher mortality rates. But I would still very much like to bring the same technology that we're doing there into um, to Canada, to, you know, all high-resource settings, because I think there's just as much need to be able to do this here as the, on the low-resource settings. So what key messages can physicians take from your article and apply into their clinical practice? So I think that we as clinicians need to drive the adoption of these types of technologies. If we don't demand them, they'll not be delivered to us. So I think we often rely on, you know, the, the companies to innovate to make these tools. But I think that we as physicians need to demand these. We need to stress the importance of having them. And particularly in the, the types of settings where we see these rare occasions of having sepsis. Um, I think that's the situation where these technological innovations can be very, very powerful. So advocacy and uh, collaboration and innovation. Absolutely. And then, you know, obviously there's, you know, somehow one needs to do the research and that requires you know, a certain element of, you know, funding, collaboration, networking that we need to do to be able to put this together because it's certainly something that will require a national effort to actually make this successful. Well, thanks for joining me to talk about your, your commentary today. Thank you very much, Gertie.
I've been speaking with Dr. Mark Ansomino, a pediatric anesthesiologist and director of the Centre for International Child Health at BC Children's Hospital in Vancouver, British Columbia. The commentary he co-authored is published in CMAJ. To read the article, visit cmaj.ca. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on Apple Podcasts or your favorite app. While you're there, you can browse and listen to our many past episodes and you can leave us a rating. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening. <laughs>